next door had their baby. Oh, that's nice. Well, I mean, not for you living next door to them. Well, it's not so bad. It sounds like a lamb. I'm not sure if Jack and I are just like irredeemably rural, but it sounded just like a lamb in distress to both of us. I'm trying to work out at the moment whether it's cheaper to buy blackout curtains or make them, considering how many windows I have. Buying them, sure. I mean, they're fucking cheap, as me. Go to Wayfair. The th- yeah, but I'm thinking about the thermal ones. It might yeah. be that the yeah, fabric still is cheap. Yeah. Um, yeah, the fabric might be cheap, but when are you actually going to make them? You've got to put your own labour into account here. Oh yeah, I suppose. Well, I'm not paying. I'm not paying myself a living wage, Jesus, Francine. Well, no, but the idea would be that eventually you work yourself to death, and then you won't be able to do your actual living wage job. Well, yes, there is that. Once you're dead, you understand. I, might, uh, <laughs> I don't have to pay you a living wage when you're dead. Right there in the title. I might be able to retire at some point. Oh, I've got a pension. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> We're never going to retire. <laughs> God, no. To be fair, I do have a pension. You can't retire from a burning wasteland. Yeah. We'll just be surviving <laughs> in the wasteland, leaving scattered diary entries for someone to find exactly. out of order. <laughs> God, we're both feeling really positive then. Do you know I was in a good mood earlier? Just recording in the evening doesn't work for me mentally, I must say. I'm never in a good mood in the evening these days. I'm just never in a good mood these days. Yeah. I was going to say, how are you? But like... I mean, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just yeah. As I said, like the other day when we when I sent you the link about the BBC and Ofcom appointments or probable appointments, which just nail in the coffin for me and kind of been on a plateau of calm despair since then yeah my mental health has been uh been great really fucking mm-hmm. rock and roll at the yeah. moment yeah how, how you doing i'm so fucking tired just like physically physically mentally emotionally just everything man i mean like obviously work has been held because i'm covering for like my head chef is self-isolating and then like all of my free time seems to end up getting taken up with things how many of those are your fault directly not that that makes it any better or worse just that you might be able to drop a couple it's most it's just like fucking housework and being a functioning human and looking after yourself not stuff you can opt out of no i can't opt out of fucking life God, that sounded way more depressing than it needed to. <laughs> but it's also just like the whole fucking constant pandemic. At least we were when we were in lockdown. It's like, oh fuck, we're in a lockdown. But it was like a tangible thing. And now it's like, yeah, we were doing the thing about it. That was the thing we were doing. We were staying at home, and that that was progress because, you know, that was an action. Everybody was doing the same thing, and it was structured. Whereas now it's like. Don't go out, but also pubs and restaurants are open. You, you've oh. always got the vague feeling that you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. No matter what you do. I was kind of venting about it on Twitter the other day, and it's just like a bit of me literally just wants to run away to the woods and never see another human being and just make stuff. And another bit of me really, really wants to have the part of the life where I'm like in a pub, and not even in a pub. I don't like care about drinking. I just want to be in a room full of people I can hug. Yeah. 
and for it to not feel risky and that's like such a small thing and there are some people who are like oh i just want it to be back to normal so they just act like it is and it's like well that's why it's taking longer to get back to normal Mm, whatever normal is going to be at the end of this but just like i would like to go and sort of process this partially socially yeah no absolutely absolutely it's i i know like even even just with the drinking side of it like i remember that loss just when I gave up drinking, just the, oh, that part of my life, even though it was shit quite a lot of the time, actually had some really good bits to it. And like, I felt the loss very keenly. And I imagine it's that like plus a lot for you right now, because that plus all the other sides of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's all a bit ridiculous. So yeah. So I'm going to not be this depressing for the entire podcast. So I'm going to try and get it all out of my system now. Yeah, exactly. Should we actually leave this bit in this time? I feel like sometimes our listeners should know that other people feel like shit too. Yeah. And like also reach out listeners. If you do, we are here. We will, I don't know. We sound like we'll be shit, but like we're good at being nice to other people. Yeah. We're terrible (laughs) at being nice to ourselves, but we're good for other people. Like if you need recipes or, I mean, don't ask us for advice because Jesus. I thought we were going to start an agony aunt column. Oh, yeah, but I don't think anyone's seriously going to take our advice. They might. I give excellent advice sometimes. Uh, oh, yeah. I myself know. very good advice. I just very seldom follow it. Yes, very true. Mm-hmm. So, yes, in all seriousness, listeners, reach out if, if you are also frustrated with the fact that the world is on fire. But seriously, folks, mental health isn't just a chucklesome start to a podcast. But in less seriousness, we'd like to start an Agony Aunt column, so please send us Agony Aunt <laughs> letters that we don't have to take too seriously. Right, happy thoughts. This is a really good book. It is a really good book. I have had so much fun reading this, even though I've been exhausted doing note-taking and stuff because I am permanently exhausted. I have still really enjoyed it. Shall we, um, do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, why not? Hello and welcome to The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we're reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part one of our discussion of moving pictures. Yes. Discworld book 10. We're on book 10, Francine. Book 10, which seems like quite a long way and also not very far. Yes, we're nearly, I guess we're kind of a quarter of the way through almost. Yes. Actually, no, not quite. But we've still got all the extras. So many extras. And I feel like once we get to the end, we're going to want to redo the first couple. I feel like once we get to the end, we will come up with other stuff to talk about. Yeah. Joe makes Francine read Twilight. No. (laughs) Okay. Note on spoilers for our listeners. This is a spoiler light podcast. Obviously heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Moving Pictures, but we will uh, do our best to avoid talking about any major future events in the Discworld series and we are saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel The Shepherd's Crown until we get there so you dear listener can come on the journey with us on horseback across a desert falling off occasionally possibly on 1000 elephants well depends what the budget is as this book has a thousand elephants in it are you going to do a thousand irrelevant elephant factoids uh yeah I thought I'd do that for next week so uh so following up on what became one of our main topics of discussion last week or last month uh 
fixless words, you pointed out a really good one, plussed and nonplussed. Yes, I am plussed. I am permanently nonplussed. I have never been plussed. I never will be plussed. <laughs> I'm gormful, plussed, and occasionally Belmed. scathed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never scathed. <laughs> okay, that one you need to see. Yes, I will. I will. That one does sound cool. good. Uh, dispatches from the round world. Uh, Charlie tweeted to say that she was listening to some old episodes of us and she got to the first time we mentioned the pandemic and we are sweet oh. summer children. Yeah, cute. Um, I, I meant to look back and uh, listen to that myself and decided against it in the end. Did you? No, I didn't because I'm way behind on like all the other podcasts and stuff I'm listening to. But um, I did realise she was talking about Mort and that is so that was book four of the Discord series and that is the last time we recorded in the same room. Jesus Christ. So we've done as many apart as we have together. Yeah. Books even at including least, possibly not episodes. Even including doing the episodes on Good Omens, I think we've done more apart than we have together. Oh no. Sad, Which, isn't it? To be fair. Not going to lie, it's easier to edit. Yeah. Also, like now, I live forty minutes walk away from you. We'll probably keep remote recording quite yeah. a lot of the time because I don't want to walk that far. Yeah. Eventually, it'll be nice to do a couple like bonus ones together. They like watching shit. Oh yeah, especially like Christmas. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> not this Christmas. No. Well, right. we can we can see each other just as long as nobody else is around. That sounded a lot more sinister than I think you meant it to. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying to think of something to save that sentence and I couldn't, and so it trailed off and just got even worse with that. <laughs> I like a hint of serial killer in a sentence. <laughs> then you'll love all killer, no filler. <laughs> I, I'm so torn about listening to all killer, no filler because I love the hosts. They're both absolutely hilarious people, but I really don't enjoy like serial killer podcasts. Then I would say no. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> or listen to the intros to each one. True crime is my least favourite genre of podcast, but I really love Kiri Pritchard McLean. Oh, see, I love a bit of like historical true crime and a lot of them fit into that. So like Noble Blood has a lot of that stuff. And um... Yeah, I've listened to the odd episode of Noble Blood and I quite like it. American Hysteria is another one I've just started listening to because you're wrong about recommended it. I, I am just, as always, slightly overwhelmed with my podcast feed and subscribed to too many. Well, I kind of, it's like with food, I kind of go through phases of what I want to listen to. So I'm quite into in-depth historical analysis at the moment. And so Fall of Civilizations, You're Wrong About, American Hysteria, Noble Blood. There's a new series of that uh, Nice Try Utopias series apparently coming soon. Oh, good. So I... Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. I'll listen to that. Uh, but yeah, back to Dispatches from the Round World. We also got a nice email from Stephen titled Purple Post-It. Mm. Uh, and I like that Stephen seemed to change his own mind during this email, so I'm going to read it out. Okay. <laughs> Slowly catching up on the pod, just finished part three of Guards, Guards. Sorry, Guards, Guards! Oh, 
and your discussion about the way Sybil is described has been really interesting for me. I hadn't really thought about how negatively she's portrayed in some respects, so thanks for educating me. However, I think you were too negative about Vimes during his dinner with Sybil. I read that section as reflecting very much his own low, low self-esteem. When he says she couldn't do worse, he really means it. But when he says he couldn't do better, he means that more broadly, not that he's settling, but that she's far too good for me. And now that I've written this, I see perhaps you weren't negative enough about Vimes. <laughs> Uh, Stephen also ended with I've been recommending you to people so hopefully your upgrade to canvas swimming pool will be soon so thank you Stephen for writing in <laughs> and uh, unfortunately we don't have the canvas swimming pool yet but as it's That's now awesome, like half of our conversations encapsulated in an email us talking ourselves out of our own opinions you are, cl- you are clearly the kind of listener for us <laughs> yes uh, unfortunately still no swimming pool um, but- oh, well it's a bit late in the year now isn't it yeah, I think next year. At this point, you can just put out a big bowl and it'll fill up by the end of the week. Yeah, well, I'm now watering my plants with rainwater by just forgetting to ever bring my watering can in when it chucks it down. Excellent. Yes. Eco. Anyway, uh, Francine, do you want to introduce us to uh, the book Moving Pictures? Sure. Uh, it is the Tense Disc World novel, as we have already said. Um, it was published in 1990 along with, like, half of the other books Pratchett ever wrote apparently (laughs) I think we mentioned last month it was like the most prolific year you published five books in a year so yeah it was Moving Pictures Eric obviously uh, two of the Bromeliad trilogy and what's the last one Uh, so he published Diggers Good Omens Eric Good Omens and Moving Pictures how do we forget Good Omens oh you know inconsequential work really isn't it Yes, it's very minor. One of the lesser known Terry Pratchett works, I think. With some obscure author that I don't think ever came to anything afterwards. No, no, I think he did some (laughs) books with pictures in or something. (laughs) (laughs) Like whenever I meet someone and they ask, like if I bring up my podcast, they ask what it's about, but they're not sure who Terry Pratchett or Discworld is. It's like, okay, have you seen, I have to now do, have you seen Good Omens? It's like, oh, it was the thing with David Tennant and Michael Sheen. Oh yeah, I liked that. It's like, right, that's Terry Pratchett. Yeah, I know. I've not done that. Um, I think I just go read it. Well, I mean, <laughs> then I sort of go, okay, you liked that. We well, should read the book it's based on. And then while you're there, there's this. <laughs> while handy- you're in the general shelf, there's this handy dandy 42 book series. I keep saying 42. Take you a minute. I think it's not 42. I think it's 41. Well, we started out saying it was 55 or something. So. I feel like as people who host a Discworld podcast, we should know definitively how many books there are. No, I quite like it being in flux. Okay, good. It gives gives it a lack of finality. Finality? Finality. Yes. Anyway, yeah, so... uh... Uh, Sorry, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So it is a standalone book, Moving Pictures. Mm -hmm. Not part of one of the major arcs, although it does start some characters' arcs, kind of. Um without going into any spoilers. It's based on the early years of Hollywood. Pretty obviously. Does not take a literary analysis genius to work that out, luckily, because we don't have any of those. (laughs) Uh, With aspects of various film history, like it's not just the early, early years of Hollywood he's drawn from. Although it has quite a sparse subplot for the Wizards, is the first time that the cast of the university faculty as we know them appears and that makes me very happy yeah it has some really good wizard stuff i really enjoyed it 
it's also I mean this in general is just one of my favorite Discworld books so I was worried it was going to disappoint me rereading it and it absolutely hasn't I, I hadn't remembered it as one of my favorites at all but I am enjoying it quite a lot I think it's a combination of I like the golden age of Hollywood stuff because I have a soft spot for that and for certain old films. Uh, It's the first Discworld book where we get the X technology comes to the Discworld, which uh, it's a thing that happens a couple of times across the Discworld books. And it is always a joy because it's just good fun. Well, hot take, not very hot take. Victor, I reckon, is kind of like a proto-Moist von Litvig, who is the protagonist of a lot of the X-Technology books. So, I will get into a little bit of, uh, of Victor and his character when we get there. Yes. But, uh, I can definitely kind of see that. But yeah, so it's a fun book. Cool. Should I tell us what happened? Yeah, go for it. So we this section is page 1 to 112, at least in the Corgi paperback edition. We open on Great Artuan, Swimming Through Space. As the nature of non-binary reality is explained, we go to a hill where rain never falls and witness the death of Deccan Ribobe. An alchemist has a eureka movement, thankfully fully clothed. A boom disturbs Ridcully, the new Arch-Chancellor of the Unseen University. The alchemists have discovered octocellulose, nothing could go wrong here, and banged grains to go along with it. They decide to work outside of Ankh-Morpork, away from the watchful eye of wizards. Luckily, Holywood is empty and waiting. The Bursa tells the Arch-Chancellor they need to discuss a student, Victor Tugelbund, currently revising carefully with Ponder Stibbons. Holywood crops up in the students' minds before they head to the pub. We learn that Victor's lazy life plan requires very carefully not becoming a full-fledged wizard. The Arch-Chancellor's slow on the uptake, but eventually gets his head around needing to provide Victor with a fiendishly unfailable exam. As Victor head homes from the pub, he happens to rescue Silversmith the Alchemist from the hands of a dastardly mugger and gets offered a job. As the disc's first moving picture is projected in the town square, Victor gets ideas, Dibbler sells sausages, and a wonder dog woofs. Victor misses his exam as Ponder answers one simple question. Victor, Dibbler, Detritus the Troll, and Gaspode the Wonder Dog all find themselves heading to Holywood as the things outside reality watch and mandible. Vincent makes his way to Silversmith's office in Holywood and gets himself a job after a bit of breaking and entering. Dibbler hires Detritus before walking into a job of his own. Victor learns he's a natural moving picture star and learns just how it all works. Dibbler invents advertising and promises 1,000 elephants as Victor prepares to star as Cohen the Barbarian. He meets Ginger, his feisty co-star. Swept up in Holywood magic during filming, Victor and Ginger get a bit romantic before demanding a lunch break and finding themselves a bit underemployed. Mrs. Whitlow brings a disconcerting device before the Arch-Chancellor and the Bursa. It goes plib. Dwarves sing as Holywood continues to grow, and Dibbler takes a quick late-night trip to Ankh-Morpork. As Dibbler chats with the owner of Ankh-Morpork's best cinema, Victor goes for a swim and finds poor old Deccan and the book. Victor tries his and at Orsandling, as the Cohen click proves to be a huge success. Victor goes for a drink with the trolls as Dibbler hunts down his new star, and as Victor ponders the nature of Holywood, Detritus falls in love. Good um, old Detritus. Yes. Uh, so, helicopter loincloth watch, uh, page 61. Mm. Uh, Dibbler looked approvingly at the troll. Detritus was wearing nothing except a ragged loincloth, which concealed whatever it was that trolls felt it necessary to conceal. I see. So what we have here is a loincloth. That is a, a 
Bonafide loincloth. Bonafide loincloth. Also, uh, some questions about troll genitalia that I'm not going to ask. I don't think anyone's going to answer. This is a family-friendly tea time podcast. Oh, God. Other bits we're uh, <laughs> keeping an eye on as we go through. We once again open on the turtle, which I think has been true for almost all of the books. Uh, deaths here. We haven't had a book without death yet. Uh, we haven't had a book where we haven't been to Ankh-Morpork yet. Have we not? Not well. Hmm. That's one of the things I was keeping an eye on. Uh, the librarian's origins get explained again, although this time it's a character explaining it to another character. Yeah. Uh, and we are still in the century of the fruit bat for those keeping track of the disc's vague and confusingly named timeline. Oh, I have a timeline, don't I? I have that bookmarked somewhere. I'll try and put that in the show notes again. Excellent. So, yeah, Century of the Fruit Bass at the moment. So, on to quotes. I think mine's before yours. Mine's very short this week. Uh, A month went by quickly. It didn't want to hang around. (laughs) Which I read and felt was very relatable because that keeps happening. Yes. Where are we now? Oh, God. It's Well, it's October for you, dear listeners, and more or less. It's the day before October. For, oh, no, tomorrow's the last day of September. 30? Yeah, 30 days. Yeah, tomorrow's the 30th. So uh, it's going to be all right. Is it? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I promise, Francine, everything is going to be fine. Okay. Um Sorry, what's what's your favourite quote from this section? Oh, laziness. Page 37. This is describing Victor's character. Victor Tugelbend was also the laziest person in the history of the world. Not simply ordinarily lazy. Ordinary laziness was merely the absence of effort. Victor had passed through there a long time ago, had gone straight through commonplace idleness and out the far side. He put more effort into avoiding work than most people put into hard labour. That's very relatable to me. I like mm-hmm. that. One of my favourite Ask Reddit threads ever, one of the things that got me into Reddit, I think, was a, a question of what's the laziest thing you've ever seen someone do? And the answers in that made me laugh and laugh and laugh. Like there was one where some guy in the Navy turned a whole boat around to get himself in the shade without having to get up like shit like that <laughs> oh i remember that one that was yeah very i'll find one. it put it in the show notes because i want to read it best of and i love stories like that and i also love the fact that i will sometimes spend an entire afternoon working out a way to automate a task that would have taken me probably less than that afternoon just out of sheer bloody minded laziness yeah you have a particular magic at making your laziness somehow triple your workload yeah yeah it's um it works out in my favor career-wise uh not really life-wise <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really not saying it's a bad thing my version of laziness is thinking I can put things off till later because I can definitely squeeze a three-hour task into an hour oh yeah unfortunately I also suffer from that <laughs> it is the worst thing about me especially when it comes to working prep shifts in the kitchen yeah we both have terrible time management skills unfortunately as our readers will be shocked to hear not readers the other ones listeners Listeners. as my readers will be shocked to know if they ever see an article out on time one day oh fuck i won't never mind right (laughs) never mind i'll do that later will i fuck did you just watch a deadline fly past you oh yes (laughs) 
I think I heard the echo of its footsteps in the distance rather than that. Uh, so characters, we because this is the first section, this is where we meet most of the characters. Yes, we have a rather extensive cast list. We do. This won't fit on a poster, Joanna. Well, it will if we use very tiny writing on a very large poster. Ah, spectacles. Deccan Rebobe. Ah. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. And like he dies in the first 10 pages of the book. So I'm not really that fussed about it. All right, cool. Uh, yeah. Paul Deccan, last keeper <laughs> of the door, has been doing nothing but sitting on a hill and chanting. And now he's dead and he forgot to t- teach anyone else the chants. Oops. But so more excitedly, more excitedly. Exciting me. Thank you. That was the word I wanted. C-M-O-T Dibbler. Yay. So we have met him before and we were a little bit excited about it, but this is the first book where he really gets a big role. I think this is his biggest role possibly, right? Yeah. He's never, I don't think he's ever quite this big a character. So Dibbler is great. I love him. I mean, like he is the epitome of capitalism and I should hate everything about him, but there's something so... Well, I think it's because he's so very obvious with it yeah there's no subtlety to him there's no hiding it in some facade of caring about the world or other people or the product even and i like the way like hollywood is so perfect for him Mm, yeah like his niche just absolutely comes into the world and he fits into it like a glove this little quote i like cut me own throat dibbler was one of those rare people with the ability to think in straight lines most people think in curves and zigzags so they start with a thought like i wonder how i can become very rich and then proceed along an uncertain course which includes thoughts like i wonder what's for supper and i wonder who i know who can lend me five dollars you're very attacked <laughs> whereas is one of those people who could identify the thoughts at the other end of the protest in this case i am now very rich draw a line between the two and then think his way along it slowly and patiently until he got to the other end unfortunately there is unfortunately usually the floor of no one wanting to buy what he's selling but he is a very good salesman and i do also like that he uh, sort of effectively invents advertising i mean he did very well he managed to get that decent anti-dragon cream during guards guards he did i mean that that was a legitimate product that was it was all the way from some mountains exactly some mountains and the fact that he manages to uh, take um, Peleus and Melisande, a romantic tragedy in two reels, thank you, and turn it into gods and men said it was not to be, but they would not listen. A story of forbidden love, a searing saga of passion, the bridge, space, and time. This will shock you with a thousand elephants. He belongs in the 1950s. He absolutely does. I can see him with particularly like that moustache and that hat. Yeah. So I'm going to fold two characters into one here with the fact that we meet for the first time. So hyped. Mustrum Ridcully. Yay! Calling Can, for the yes. calling for the bursa. Oh no! Oh, sorry, that one was a bit loud. So, yes, we meet Rid Cully shouting for the bursa. This will become an ongoing thing. Poor bursa, uh, who's still so sane right now. He is. You can see it going like by the end of the book. I think it's uh, it's Rid Cully that does it to him. Um, I noticed Ponder Stibbons' lucky dried frog, and oh, fa- yeah. first appearance of a dried frog, possibly. <laughs> that may be. Uh, how we may get be relevant to. later. Dried frogs may definitely be relevant. But I quite like, like I love Ridcully. He's a great character. He is exactly like the wizards have brought him in because they think they need a bit of a shake up to the yeah. people trying to kill the Arch Chancellor. But I think he does shake up like the wizards as a subgroup. 
the ske- the yeah i mean it would have of the early like Triman wizards goes away and instead the wizards become great fun yeah they're a lot less uh playing on a trope and a lot more the kind of unique set of characters and i think they've got a lot more longevity to them and i mean as a as a character set not just as a they're not murdering each other yeah there's only so <laughs> there's only so far you can take the scheming wizard trope but i do also like that he's uh he's ridcully the brown and yes in they, a fairly obvious reference there <laughs> yes so they're expecting radagast the brown who uh has a twinkly eyes and uh can tell can tell one herb from another roams the high forest with every beast his brother kind of thing sleeps under the stars and knows what the wind is saying you know you know the sort and uh, yeah, no, turns out actual country wizards are basically male versions of Sybil Rankin, yep. from what I can it, tell. Like, she, it, I think it's quite a fun British thing where there are, there are very much two types of people that live in the countryside and there are the sleeps under the stars and talks to bird types and then there are, are very there? much the... Yeah. Except I mean, in India, no. Well, no, they're all like, to be fair, they're mostly old women with cottages and like... Are you sure they're real, Joanna? I'm saying a friend of mine met someone the other day who might be a witch. Okay. <laughs> but there are a lot of the tweed trousered bird shooting yeah. types. Which yeah. I'm more judgmental of at the moment because I'm listening to that You're Wrong About episode about Diana where everyone goes to hunting parties for a social life. I mean, I'm usually fairly judgy. Speaking as somebody who roams the countryside a lot and does not like loud noises. Yeah, although I do look great in tweed. While we're around the wizards, we also meet Windle Poons. He is just a completely sort of uh, 130 years old, quite deaf. Uh, while an expert on magical writings needed adequate notice and a good run-up to deal with the present day. I, I want to be a doddery old man who can just sort of get away with whatever. All right, we can make that happen. Cool. That's uh, that's on the to-do list. That's just aspiring to a future uh i wanted to hear more about radagast the brown in lord of the rings i feel like there is probably more about him and about the colors of the wizard's order in some of the supplementary there's not that much about radagast there's like a bit more but not that much no because i was really into the idea of it when i was a bit younger so i did look into it um i uh I've not really read much of the supplementary. In fact, I haven't read Lord of the Rings since I was a kid, let alone reading the supplementary materials. Well, there you go. There's a bonus we can do one day. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I'm not letting you do a summary, though. <laughs> I'm doing the summary of that. Me with my bullet points. <laughs> I can make summaries less detailed than I do. It's just... I don't think you can with Lord of the Rings, mate. No. <laughs> Look, I have two ways of summarising things The way I do it for the podcast, which is overly detailed uh-huh. The way I do it when I'm slightly drunk And try and explain the plot of something That you haven't seen Which is really just focusing on the costumes Which I'm very into Don't get me wrong <laughs> My recaps during the final series of Game of Thrones When you hadn't seen it But vaguely wanted to know what happened It was excellent, it was perfect Exact r- right amount of detail telling me how terrible it was but telling me exactly how good the score and the dress was which there was some great i sound like i'm being sarcastic because i just do today i can't help it but i'm not it was i I had a fantastic time listening to you wax not very lyrical about game of thrones (laughs) anyway is it um, waning lyrical if you become slowly less enthused yes waning lyrical (laughs) 
Also, my stripper name. No. Um, <laughs> I was about to say band name, but fine. <laughs> uh, where are we? Sorry, so... Waxing Lyrical would be an excellent beauty salon name. That must exist. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we meet Ponda Stibbons. <laughs> beauty salon slash karaoke bar. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? Yeah, Ponda. Ponda Stibbons. Ponda Stibbons, who doesn't show his true potential yet i feel but he does become a fully fledged wizard we've got his origin story which i've forgotten yeah i forgot he showed up so early because i associate him with the wizards in future plots but he's quite different by the time we get there and then obviously the big one one of the main characters victor tugelbend what a terrible name amazing last name so yeah victor uh is pretty much our, our hero of the book he's our leading man he is the archetypal early Hollywood star. Yes, chiseled jawline and a very thin moustache. <laughs> Makes him look a bit like he's been drinking a chocolate milkshake. I like him. I love the description you read out of his laziness. Um, yeah. But there's quite a good, in Mark Burroughs' book about Terry Pratchett, uh, there's quite a good quote I'm going to read out. Uh, when a fan wrote to Pratchett to ask if the book's hero, Victor Tugelbend, would return in another novel, Terry replied that he viewed such characters as movie stars, reappearing in several books but playing different roles. To him, Victor, Pyramid's Tepic, the eponymous hero of Mort, and perhaps even initially carroting guards, guards, were all roles played by the same actor. Um, and he sort of says this is also true of the less than developed female co-stars, so Bethany, Conina, Tracy, Ginger, Isabel. Yeah. Um, I still I thought, feel like he has more in common with Moist than Carrot, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of more based on what uh, Guards Guards was going to be originally, which was more focused on Carrot than Vimes, but Vimes yeah. kind of took over. Yeah, he has. Rid of that. But if you look at what Victor's character is like in this book, he has got a lot, quite a lot in common with Tepic and with Mort, and this is a sort of certain young hero that Yeah, I'd say after this book sort of crops up less and less as you get these... A, slightly older main characters, but B, like, slightly more focused and developed main characters. Yeah, less action movie. This won't mean a lot to our first-time readers, but I think in future books, the character that has the most in common with someone like Victor or Mort or Tepic would be William de Word. Mm, Although yeah. he's got a lot more background and sort of character development, but I'd say. Yeah, he's a, he's a similarly slightly useless, but competent in one area male protagonist yeah but i can see a point him sort of being the proto moist von litvig as well just in the way how he kind of gets into places and becomes at the center of something yeah and 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 ends up being really good at something through sheer not really wanting to do stuff yeah which is uh, a trope i really love and like if that is a character in especially a tv series i will probably end up fancying that character Ooh. Thomas Silverfish of interesting and instructive cinematography. Did he look up who he's based on? No, I didn't. I uh, I didn't get time. He's uh, based on a real early Hollywood mogul, uh, Sam Goldwyn, who was known as Samuel Goldfish for a little while. Um, oh, right. I think his his original name was like uh, Geld Goldfish or something. Um, and then Goldfish, and then I guess someone told him that was stupid, so he changed it to Goldwyn. <laughs> uh, but he, he was known for like a lot of slightly off sayings, um, and Silverfish has a few of those throughout. 
Um, I think uh, the annotated Pratchett highlights a couple of them. Oh, cool. Uh, so I'll link that. But yeah, uh, include me out, I think Silverfish said. Oh, right. One of them, yeah. Uh, I quite like that. Include yeah, almost out. everything in this book is a reference. Like I had yeah. a real problem picking out an obscure one. I noted, like a, I noted a couple of my favourite movie references and I'll yeah. keep doing that as we go through. Uh, so who else? We've got Gaspo the Wonder Dog. Which, again, have we met him in a previous book or is this the first time? Mm, see, I don't know. I've, I've kind of lost track. I'm pretty sure this is the first time because he mentions at some point in this book that he's only just learned to speak. Yeah. So I guess it's Hollywood magic that gets him speaking. Yeah. Um, but I sort of, I'm sure I remember a reference to him somewhere. But yeah, so I love Gaspage. Yeah, he's a little sweetie. He is the best. He is... Uh, tiny and scruffy and sort of a falling apart mutty little dog which is adorable and he's clever he's very clever and uh there's a I, I like the way he reveals himself as a talking dog he's showing off playing the harmonica and uh, oh yes victor's just victor is so he's a very polite young boy is victor he is i guess it like uh, goes with the territory of making sure the wizards don't get too cross with you yeah He's like sort of quite naturally charming. And so he's sat there with this dog talking to him and it's just trying to work out how to sort of politely say, should you, should you be able to talk? It's normal. So another tiny side character that's referenced. Uh, and I, again, no spoilers, but remember this name, dear leader, is Mrs. Marietta Cosmopolite of 3 Querm Street, Ankh-Morpork. Dear leader. Dear, dear listener. <laughs> I tried to say listener. Are we going North Korea now? <laughs> I tried to say list, dear listener, but you know, in my brain does like dear reader. This is actually now a private podcast for Kim Jong Un. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tired, Francie. <laughs> dear listener, please remember the name Mrs. Marietta Cosmopolite of Three Quirm Street and Walkport. I enjoyed the. Um... The brief description of her, which was like believing the world was round and that three horrible little dwarves hid and watched her get undressed every night, which she was right about, but only by coincidence. <laughs> but she also believes that it does you good to get out and have a laugh occasionally and that there's niceness in everyone if you know where to look. Mental. Uh, let's get to Ginger. Uh, we meet her when Victor's walking down the street and he's just got to Hollywood and she's described as having the weird uh, silent movie makeup on. She was a foot shorter than him and her shape was doubtful since most of her was covered in a ridiculously frilly dress, although the dress wasn't as ludicrous as the big blonde wig full of ringlets. Mm -hmm. And her face was white with uh, makeup apart from her eyes, which were heavily ringed in black. The general effect was that of a lampshade that hadn't been getting much sleep lately. <laughs> which is fairly accurate when you look at the makeup from the time. <laughs> yeah. And also, honestly, it's a good look. I do it quite a lot. I oh, yeah. I am a very attractive lampshade. To be fair, though, like as as purple poster as I can get about Pratchett, she's not a total sexy lamp of a character. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's... She's not my like, favourite. She's just because she's a bit... Yeah. Like, uh, she, she seems to, certainly in the first section, exist only to be a tetchy foil yeah, this is the thing I was kind of going to say is the Conina, Tracy, Isabel. Uh, and yeah. I won't read out the quote again from uh, the Tansy Rainer Roberts book, but it's the kind of 
hilariously bitchy to the lead instead of rewarding him with her sexy self. Yeah. I do like the line um, when they're telling Victor what he's going to have to do for the Kern the Barbarian film and they say to her, you just lie there looking rescued. Yeah, yeah. And she sort of sighs and says, yeah, I'm quite good at that because that's all she's been able to do in these films. Yeah, I I did like that line because uh, Jack likes to watch a lot of old movies and a lot of B-movies and... It is annoying to see that every time it's like, oh, look, it's a woman who is just sexy lamp in distress. Excellent. Yeah. Sexy distress lamp. There's also, uh, they sort of, when you get them being introduced on set and she's sort of saying, oh, I've got to do this ridiculous film and some kid with bad breath and a forehead you could lay a table on. (laughs) And uh, they have this like cattiness with each other, and it really reminded me of Morton Isabel, especially. There's this, yeah, uh, yeah. The... It's a bit better done than Morton Isabel, I think. It is, and it's a trope I really like, where they argue with each other until they fancy each other. And I, I hate that I like it, but I always really enjoy it. But yeah, so I like Ginger, but she is a bit like we're still not quite at Pratchett writing like really good women. We had a hint at of it with Sybil Ramkin, and it feels like this thing goes back a bit, like. I don't know. We've had a couple witches ones already. Oh yeah, no, and we've had the witches. Okay, so I mean specifically like a certain kind of young woman. He writes. Yeah, yeah. I think he, he well. writes one young woman. Yeah, he, he, so far he's kind of writing one young woman, and it is Conina, Tracy, Isabel, Ginger, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, Magret as well. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think Magret, Magret was a already bit a bit better, but there was yeah. certainly some some flavour of it when she interacts with what's his jobs. Yeah, I think he's very good at writing women talking to other women, but when you put young women with men, you kind of get a bit limited. And like this, spoiler, but this maybe book will just not... got snapped at a lot by young women when he was young. <laughs> and the thing is, I have always sort of wanted to be one of these women. I'm not very good at it because I uh, like cry if someone argues with me. But yeah, I but never yes. get the chance to be that kind of woman because I just give off the vibes. I think. Yeah, I mean, also people don't talk to me a lot. But also, like, spoiler alert, that this book will not pass the Bechdel test. No. no. Actually, no, no, it doesn't surprise me. But yeah, for all that, I like Ginger. I'm going to talk about her a lot more in the next section because she gets a really great line in the next section. Well, yeah, as I remember, she actually becomes an active participant in, like, the the proper plot. Whereas she... now I think she is, you know, it is a useful role being the kind of expositional bickerer so (laughs) oh no it is it's a good role and i like it it's Um, just definitely something we've already seen in previous books yeah but then ditto with victor yeah and i like how the kind of weird appearance of early movie stars is described yes the the tired lampshade look yeah timeless timeless uh so we also meet uh trolls rick and rock and maury you nearly said rick and morty Yep. That's how I read it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So we've got Rock and Murray who are starring in the Cohen the Barbarian epic. Uh, shout out to Cohen, me. who's not here, but like very much is still in our hearts. Yeah, he's here in spirit. <clears throat> so Rob if he was in spirit, he'd probably still manage to kill someone for portraying him this way. But Yeah, definitely. Uh Rock manages decides to rename himself. So he was Galena, he renames himself. Um Rock Hudson is a really interesting yeah, person. There's a couple. There's a. Oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but I will find it and link to it in the show notes. It's a very good film about his life. 
he was uh, like gay and obviously not out when he was making films, but mm. eventually came out and he was HIV positive and okay, um, yeah, fascinating life. Uh, more importantly, as far as trolls go, detritus. Yeah, <clears throat> we love. He mentioned as like a, a bouncer, a bouncer before, hasn't he? Yeah, this yeah. Is the he first was... time he gets some lines. <laughs> he gets some lines. He gets to really be a person. He's figuring out what he wants to be doing with his life. He's great. I love him. He is, and I like how effective he is as Dibbler's hired hand. Even yeah, he's just being violent for the time being. He's another person who sort of finds his niche in Hollywood very quickly. Yes, and then like him. Is it right? The last, the last line in the section, right, where he flashes like a garnet. Yeah, I was about to go onto that. So, as well as meeting Detritus, we meet Ruby. I love Ruby. Uh, she's the woman that Detritus falls in love with, and part of it is I like someone being described. It uh, and again, we're not going full purple post at high horse. But she is a large woman and she is described as large and it's not described for laughs. And part of that is because she's a troll. Obviously. I was about to say she is literate. I think she's described as a foothill. So uh, it was a continental drift with curves. It's one of my favourite descriptions. Yeah. Of <laughs> but I don't think it's really because to this, like to trolls, this is very sexy. Yeah. And I like that she gets this introduction of uh, coming out from the smoke. Uh, wearing a feather boa and singing because that's such like an old Hollywood thing. That's oh, absolutely, thing that was, yeah, yeah. That was being sent up with Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit when she comes out and performs in the red dress. I like the Archer take on that as well. Yes. When it's Lana doing it. Um, I just love it. It's always such a great moment in films. And yeah, but she's great. You know, she's a modern troll woman. She's come out here and she's... Uh, She's found a way to very much be herself and not have to just be old troll. Yeah. Uh, she also gets the great line. Uh, I'm not going to try and say it in trollish, but I'll say the translation. Fine. Uh, is that the legendary scepter of magma who was king of the mountain, smiter of thousands, yea, even tens of thousands, ruler of the golden river, master of the bridges, delver in dark places, crusher of many em- enemies in your pocket, or are you just pleased to see me? Oh, see, I think it sounds better in trollish. Yeah, fine, but I don't speak. <laughs> I very much am. It's hard known. to get the gravel right. <laughs> I am known for not speaking trollish. Um, yeah, Ruby blew him a kiss and Detritus blushed the colour of fresh cut garnet. Aww. Aww. That makes me very happy. It's very yeah. sweet. And then lastly, on characters, uh, we get a little cameo from Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs. Yeah. Of the night wash, having a roll up in a doorway, keeping warm and dry, and staying out of trouble. Want. It is good work, lads. Keep it up. It's nice to see them. We'll quite, see you soon. <laughs> yeah, quite happy that they're there. Uh, so, locations we're introduced to the Guild of Alchemists. So far, we've met uh, the wizards, aren't a guild, but I sort of think of them as fitting into the same structure as the guilds almost. Yeah, like a little bit above it, maybe, same as the priests. Yeah. Uh, but we've met the Assassin's Guild, we've met uh, at least one member of the Beggar's Guild, and we've met a few from the Thieves' Guild. And we've yeah, met Nari briefly. We do, uh, we do get a brief chat to the patrician, uh, having a little chat with a spy, um, mention of the Scorpion Pit, love a bit of Scorpion Pit. So yeah, alchemists and guilds, I like the difference in hierarchy between alchemists and wizards. Uh, yeah, it's almost like later on it'll be the same with necromancers and wizards, won't it? Yeah. Just wizards, wizards are bullies. 
yeah wizards need levels so they've got someone to look down on whereas the alchemists all like to lurk alone with um beards that weren't really beards but more like groups of individual hairs clustering together for mutual protection (laughs) Uh, Um, it wasn't that alchemists hated other alchemists they often didn't notice them or thought they were walruses yeah this coming after a mention of mercury so (laughs) yeah um so yes tiny guild hasn't really achieved any kind of status because they all keep blowing themselves up uh, obviously one of the main loca- locations is holywood which is quite obviously a parody of a small town in poland what i was just checking you were paying attention <laughs> <laughs> holywood what could that be referencing <laughs> fuck me i thought i completely missed something there <laughs> <laughs> yes hollywood yeah that one that one yeah yeah so kind of described as a shitty desert type place just a hill and some beautiful light and it doesn't rain no i think a large part of why hollywood was chosen as a destination apart from like the weather always being awesome um was that they were escaping a lot of kind of labor laws and stuff and taxes and i should have looked into that more i'll look into it for next week it's a similar reason why, like, now uh, Vancouver's a really popular filming location. There's loads of ah. tax exemptions. So, ah, well, same way a lot of uh, film, American films are in Spain and Italy, right? Yeah. If you see any American, like, film or TV series with lots of, like, lush greenery and hills and mountains and shit, that's usually somewhere outside of Vancouver. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, like, Vampire Diaries, um, <laughs> Twilight. <laughs> no, no, it's just these are genuinely well, ones you are that well into fang banging right now, huh? <laughs> no, it's just I'm listening to a really good podcast about it. What's that? Uh, the Empire Diaries, hosted by, among other people, Latoya Ferguson, who is one of my favourite people to listen to about pop culture because she's hilarious. Sorry, say that the name of it? The Empire Diaries. Like A-M-P. Yeah, because they're amped to watch The Vampire Diaries. Oh, cute. Yeah. yeah. She's also, uh, Latoya is also taking over Angel on Top, the Buffering spin-off podcast. Sorry. Getting the reference in for the people playing bingo. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we're going to have to add Vampire Diaries to bingo, I think. <laughs> no, I'll get over it again in like a couple of weeks. Um, okay, sure, sure. Why was I... Look, I've written down Empire Diaries now and I was trying to write down some homework for myself. Um, Ho- oh, Hollywood. looking into the origin. Hollywood. Of, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Hollywood. Da, 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 da. So yeah, um, I really like the talk about the buildings in Hollywood, which are all oh, beautiful yeah. on the front, and there's nothing on the inside. It wore its houses inside mm-hmm. out. There have been some cases of uh, streets like that, like literally that were just facades, right? Yeah, I was reading. About, I mean, there's a whole thing even in London where there are some like what looks like a house, but it's actually yeah. just a facade. They were like train tunnels. Oh, is that what they were for? Ah, oh, that makes sense. Uh, that's what I vaguely remember from a plot point in an episode of Sherlock. Yes, that's it. That's probably where I know it from. But there's also... Oh, that in... thing's out now, that movie. Um, oh, Enola. Enola Holmes. Yes, I need to watch that. Yeah, me too. We should try and watch that at the same time. Yes, we should. Um, as long as you don't watch it on your week off, which I won't hold it against you if you do. Yeah. Uh, I'm. Well, I'm not going to have TV for at least a few days. Oh, my God. You really are going to the woods. Yeah. There's going to be like barely any wi-fi um anyway (laughs) one of the other places they used to do that was in the old like gold rush towns because quite a lot of people would go to these gold rush areas not because they wanted gold but because they 
knew more like life would crop up around it so like places where you could get gold like some kind of town would crop up uh so restaurants and brothels and bars and things so people would go so that they could perform as musicians or they could open up restaurants or oh i see so what yeah once like the the trend had been noted that this is what happened in gold rush towns like you'd know aha this place is going to need a bar yeah exactly Uh, so they'd find ways to get there and they'd like these were hardcore people traveling but then quite often a place would become uh, it would slowly build up and facades would be built first so you'd have like this amazing beautiful wooden facade and then behind it is like a tent wow okay and that was just so people that that was to kind of fuel the the bullishness of the market then yeah and then like eventually it would become as more people went it would become easier to travel to these places so you would start getting tourists coming to these gold rush towns okay making it look good would probably like encourage train companies and whatever yeah and or then eventually the century but yeah, yeah. <laughs> more money would start coming through the town which would mean real proper buildings and roads mm. and things would start coming up smart yeah it's really interesting i've got a friend who like lives in one of these towns that originally cropped up as like a gold rush thing Oh, it's really cool. I thought that was like just a straight joke about them being sets instead of actual buildings, but it's a... There's some (laughs) background. Yeah, I mean, I think the joke here is more about them basically just being sets, but there is some background to it. Cool. Uh, And then this is like a location we visit briefly, but I want to talk about it because I like this bit of description. The Odium, which is the sort of premier cinema that's propped up in Ankh-Morpork, because as soon as these things start existing, a cinema starts existing. As reference to the Odeon listeners yes. who have not had an Odeon because they've been closed for quite a long time now yes Odeon has gone so the cinema I work for a for a little indie cinema and at one point it was an Odeon it was yeah when I was a kid I used to go to the Odeon in that very I location it's yes. much cheaper than Joanna it was much it's not your fault well <laughs> no I mean it's free for me but uh when a massively successful film comes through and Besom who runs the Odeon is uh, wondering what to do with all this money he starts thinking about a bigger location he's thinking about fancy pillars and uh lots of gold stuff and curly bits and this is yeah. kind of a thing in cinemas like you do get oh I'll tell you what if you want some beautiful descriptions of 1950s cinemas read uh Thunderbolt Kid Bill Bryson's autobiography Oh, cool. Or like his description of his childhood in the 50s America. Yeah. He, he, he really gets the kind of childlike wonder, like he's preserved it very well in his memory. Of yeah. beautiful cinemas, it's well worth reading. I do, I quite like it though. Like, uh, so the, the cinema I work in now is lovely, um, quite modern looking, although it does have a couple of pillars at the front. Yeah, it's got some nice old plush stuff though, isn't it? Like... Uh, well, no, all the seats are new because I found, uh, so before it was all properly done up, I went in and took a bunch of photos because I was going to film something in there for like a media studies project. Okay. And do you remember how it used to look? They were like... How crushed, long ago? Uh, we're talking uh, in our late childhood, early teens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it was like that for quite a while. Crushed blue velvet seats. Yes and huge gold curtains yes. over the screens and it was amazing we used to do back like, when you still had intervals oh yeah we still <clears throat> so we show a lot of like live theater and opera stuff and we have intervals and oh, can you buy have, ice creams from somebody with it you can so our lovely we have a lovely manager who's worked for this cinema for like 60 years mm-hmm. um and he comes to all of these live things and he's always in a suit and a bow tie and the what genuinely like, 60 years are you exactly? yeah genuinely 60 oh my years. god 
Yeah, yeah. He's even got a book out about it. It's called like The Littlest Show on Earth or something. Does he um, perform an arcane ritual twice a day? Because if so, you need to make sure he trains somebody else. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's he also, he's also still trained on the old projection equipment and we've got a bunch of old projection equipment so we can show like old uh, real stuff because we, we don't just show everything on digital so we can sometimes get proper film prints in, oh. which a lot of cinemas don't know. Um, but yeah, he's worked there for like 60 years. What's now like one of our changing rooms upstairs uh, used to be a flat and the woman who's now his wife lived up there and that's how they met. And so she also works for us and she sells ice cream in these intervals when we do like theatre and opera and stuff. Oh, it's so sweet. Obviously, it's all like less now because of COVID and stuff, but it's yeah. a really lovely part of working there. That's nice. I like that. Sorry, what were we talking about? Oh, old uh, cinemas. We stayed on yeah. topic. <laughs> that wasn't a giant diversion. So that's all the locations we go to. Oh, cool, yeah. God, yeah. we did have a lot of characters and locations, didn't we? We did. Uh, so little bits we liked. Um, we're going to start with you, uh, although wow. I noticed this one as well. Page 37. I just, I love, always have loved the um, interactions between Bursa and Ridkelly. As I've said before, on too many occasions, the Wizards are, weirdly enough, possibly my favourite little team. Um, and Ridkelly's special brand of thick-headedness it's amazing. It's like a particular thick-headed intelligence that I really enjoy. It is, yeah. Refusing to get the point until someone explains it from 10 different directions probably means you have a better understanding of everything than most people do. He's also just incredibly determinedly pragmatic. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the Arch-Chancellor drummed his fingers on the desk. Can't have this, he says. Can't have someone going around almost being a wizard, laughing at us up his, his what's it that people laugh up? My feelings exactly, heard the Bursar. We should send him up, said the Arch-Chancellor firmly. Down, Master, said the Bursar. Sending him up would mean making spiteful and satirical comments about him. Yes, good thinking, let's do that, said the Arch-Chancellor. Uh, no, Master, said the Bursar pinchedly. He's sending us up, so we send him down. Right, balance things up, said the Arch-Chancellor. There's also there's a hint here, and it the dynamic does shift, especially in later books, of that thing we've talked about before, the sort of power behind the throne. Yeah. So the Arch-Chancellor is the power, but the Bursa is purring. Because at this point, the Bursa still has some of the grip on his sanity and is sort of a very calmly, I'm going to do this thing and I'm just letting you know as a courtesy almost. Yeah, but yes, you get the feeling that that's what he's done for a long time and this is disrupting that massively. Yeah. So like he's just not going to get away with that with Rukali. No, and I think we'll get a fun twist on the dynamic in later books that we'll talk about. Yeah, as uh, someone else sort of becomes more of the foil to Ridcully's belligerence. Yes, <laughs> I do love Ridcully, even though he's a terrible, terrible human. <laughs> but he is—he's very much a solid human. I think that's what's so enjoyable about his character. What's your next one, Sarah? Uh, so when Victor gets himself into Silversmith's office, he does it by sneaking in and then striding very purposefully, holding a bit of paper. Because mm-hmm. he knows that's, that's how you get into places. Yes, And correct. we had a... Co- I know we had this conversation on a previous podcast. I'm not sure which uh, one. Yeah, I think it might right. have been Good Omens about things you can be doing that just means you can walk into somewhere. So like having a clipboard, a high-vis jacket, mm-hmm. just striding very purposefully as if you belong. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, this seems like something Terry Pratchett has probably done on a number of occasions as a journalist. Now, yes. now I know more about his career and uh, clearly he enjoys it when his characters get to do the same. 
Yes, it's good fun. And it will definitely come up when we get to talk about journalism on the disc. (sighs) One day. The next note you have is also one I had as well. And it's one of my favourite moments in this book. Actually, yeah, I'm going to give that one to you, Joanna, because it is Mrs. Whitlow putting H's on everything. And I tried to read this aloud to myself earlier and I can't do it. I'm going to have to pass on to your superior H's skills. (laughs) If you could please... Uh, uh, what's it? De- demonstrate your incredible ability to place yourself above your station. So, just for context, uh, hopefully, our dear listeners will remember Mrs. Whitlow from Equal Rights. Yeah. Uh, so, Mrs. Whitlow, huge pink and becorseted in her ginger mm-hmm. wig. This is uh, she looking for husbands with the help of Granny Weatherwax's tea leaves in uh, Equal Rights. She's great. But one of the things she's described as doing is inserting a lot of H's. When Mrs. Whitlow was in the grip of acute class consciousness, she could create H's when nature never intended them to be. (laughs) She was dusting, said Mrs. Whitlow, helpfully. And then it started making a noise. It made a noise, (laughs) said Mrs. Whitlow. So she come and told me, your lordship, has her my instructions. Um, the uh, the housemaid that's found the exp- this thing that keeps um, spitting pellets out it tries to describe the noises. Wum 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 plib, sir. Plib said the bursar solemnly. Yes, sir. Plib <laughs> echoes Mrs. Whitlow. That's what made me just kind of spit into nothing earlier. Plib <laughs> plib. That was when it spat at me, sir, said Cassandra. Hexpectorated, corrected Mrs. Whitlow. And I think the determined hexpectorated. And then her twitching when Arch-Chancellor refers to it as pots going around gobbing all over people. Yeah, that's another very kind of uh, class-conscious thing, isn't it? Refusing to say certain words. Yeah, it's a bit like the whole class thing we were talking about with Sybil Rampkin, where like middle-class people make this effort to make themselves look a certain way and believe it. Whereas Sybil Ramkin was truly posh and old money, which meant she could stomp around in muddy jumpers that belonged to her grandfather. Exactly, yeah. And it's the same thing because Mrs. Whitlow is this sort of Whitlow, is this aspiring middle-class thing. So she speaks a certain way and looks a certain way. And so she's appalled when someone who is above her in the class stratum, in this case, partly because of the professional nature, so the Arch-Chancellor, says gobbing. (laughs) <laughs> because she would never dream of saying such a word. Yeah, you'd say that somebody was perspiring instead of sweating. You'd say, yes. uh, and you'd uh, say, you'd say go to the restroom instead of the loo. Say- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the weird class. I, I nearly bought an old, I was in this antique shop the other day and I found an old copy of Debrett's and I nearly bought it because it's full of stuff like this. I've got a massive copy of Debrett's up here. I need to borrow Jack's it. At some super point. into old etiquette stuff. Old etiquette stuff. This is still the play that's lurking in my brain and has been for about three years now, which is the comedy of manners set in a post-apocalyptic bunker where a copy of Debrett's is one of the only pieces of literature they've got. So I love Mrs. Whitlow and I love Mrs. Whitlow's H's. Yes. Not very good. Or um, H's. 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 Yes. That's another thing. You don't say H if you're properly posh. You say H. Uh, yes. And yes, you say but really, it's all bollocks, actually. of course. But oh, it's yeah. just so very, very ingrained in all of us here. It is 
the British class system is all ridiculous. And once again, recommending was it watching the English. Watching the English, yes, very good, very good. Um, it is hilarious listening to your wrong about again this week with the Diana thing because they're so bemused by a lot of the nature of yeah just hearing it from a fresh point of view yeah because it's all so this is uh, an american podcast where they talk about um pop culture things and do much deeper dives into it and they're talking about princess diana right now yeah and uh but they're sort of all bemused by the boarding schools and the absent parents and the hunting parties and shoots and things and this yeah. is all things i think we take for granted just exist in english life not for us but we no, know no. there's a class of people that do this yeah. Like they were confused that there is a sport called netball. Well, I feel that they are very lucky for never, ha- never having to have played it because it is a terrible, terrible, terrible sport. Oh, and and I went to a school uh, where <clears> the netball <throat> lot were called the County Upper Netball Team. So, yeah. Yep. So, yeah. I went to the school next door and we greatly enjoyed calling each other County Upper Netball Team. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Like I wasn't on the team. You'll be Obviously shocked not. to hear. <laughs> shocked. I saw your tweet about it because I, uh, when someone was tweeting about netball in relationship to that episode of the podcast, mm-hmm. and I saw you respond something on Twitter, but there was someone talking about the fact that, like in England, people who do sports aren't the popular people, and uh, it's the people who went and smoked behind the tennis sheds were the popular people. Well, kind. I don't know. I think our year group was a bit weird because we had more of a classically American setup there. The popular kids were pretty good at sports. So we had a like. I, I've always found it interesting how different it is because we went to schools next door to each other. Yeah. Then in my school, the popular kids were good at sports, but it was they were on an equal social strata to the kids that smoked behind the tennis courts. Yeah, but there was like they a certain amount school. of people that smoked behind the and that like the chav lot, the townies. Yeah, but then there were another group of people who went off to smoke weed somewhere else, and they weren't the same social strata. No, so like I used to smoke behind the tennis courts, but I was not cool. I was because I used to smoke behind the tennis courts in like a sad emo gay way. You were way. just unhappy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like a queer emo smoking behind the tennis courts, so I was much lower on the social strata. <laughs> I would go and have sad lesbian thoughts. <laughs> It was a Catholic school. Sad lesbian smoking film. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, make... please, please make that one of your poems about sad being a sad lesbian smoking, smoking behind the tennis courts, please. <laughs> I might do. I might. Oh God, I don't know why I'm finding this so pleasing. It's very, very uncool of me considering I'm not a sad Catholic lesbian and never have been. And so I probably shouldn't be punching down, but that's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know how many more poems about queerness and Catholicism I can do. I've already done like the perfect one. Yeah, but you haven't done this one exactly. No, no, I haven't. I done feel like this is more lighthearted than your incredible angry one. That one isn't angry, it's filthy. Wait, what am I thinking of? I don't know. I've got a lot of angry poems. I was talking about the really dirty one that I went. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no. The, the one I'm thinking is a little more whimsy. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I will not be reading the dirty one out on the podcast. No, you will not. It's a family <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so yeah, monster name. <laughs> Who's who? <laughs> uh, this is when they're revising, and I just think some of the monster names are really funny. Uh, so yes, what? Uh, what's the name of the outer dimensional monster whose distinctive cry is "You what? You what? You what? You what?" 
<laughs> yob soddeth. Um, and a yob is quite yeah. like an old-fashioned now. I suppose it was probably quite an 80s, 90s term for a certain sort of boy. Yobs were... Ooligan. Ooligan. Uh, uh, hoodie. Uh, what, what do we call them now, darling? Uh, uh, it was Hugger Hoodie when it was David Cameron. Yeah. Um, we don't say chavs because that's demonisation of the working class. Yes. I think I mostly just call them children and snort in disgust. Yeah. Anyway, you all know who we mean. We're trying not to be offensive, but honestly, yeah. our vague dismissal is probably just as offensive. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, you what is exactly the kind of thing. Yeah. It's, and it's you what, not you what, which is a very different thing. Oh, yes, absolutely. You what is popular in grime. Is it? <laughs> God, I have never sounded whiter. <laughs> grime. Now, what is grime, darling? Grime is a genre of music. The terrible thing is I would know very little about grime if I hadn't been into very white labour politics a few years ago. Yeah, oh, like we all God, know who Stormzy is now. Oh, I hate me. To be fair, I got into Stormzy before I joined the Labour Party oh, because I work with Tim. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never liked you less. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that's the worst sentence I've ever said. <laughs> like, really, really high up there. <laughs> I've never liked you less, and yes, I am still very fond of you, so well done, but still, gosh. <laughs> Uh, one of the other monsters I like is Tushup Aklathep, Infernal Startoad with a Million Young, who tortures its victims by holding them down and showing them pictures of its children. <laughs> and then I'm going to do this for each episode we do on this. So I'm just picking mm-hmm. out a couple of my favourite movie references. Okay, I'm, a, I'm a bunch of probably going over my head because I have not seen all movies ever. And this is so... like. The fact that I'm getting quite a lot of these means that basically the whole thing must be movie references because as we distinguished, I I not watched movies. But I like the dreams people having and Ginger dreams of red carpets and cheering crowds and a grating. She kept coming back to a grating in the dream where a rush of warm air blew up her skirts, (laughs) which is a lovely... I I will always be happy about a Marilyn Monroe reference because I love Marilyn Monroe and Marilyn Monroe films. Another little restaurant I really liked because um, this is when Dibblers come back to the city and it's raining. Yeah. And there's a talk about rain dripping off the gutters, had a rhythm all of its own. And I was trying to work out what this rhythm was meant to be as it was written. Yeah, it's only the throwaway line of Nobby saying, he must be off his nuts singing in the rain like that, that I realised the rhythm was meant to be. dum dee dum 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 dee dum dee dum 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 dee yeah, I was trying to work out if it was like some sting from Paramount Pictures or something. Yeah, that's what I thought as well until I realised it was... Dun, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, is it Fred Astaire who did Sing in the Rain? Yeah, it's Fred Astaire. Yeah. Um, he got like oh, pneumonia. Ginger, ginger like scene. Ginger Rogers. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I didn't I, I didn't point that one out. <laughs> no, I, I should have got that one. So yeah, those were the little bits we liked. On to the bigger stuff. Francine, do you want to talk to me about alchemy? No. Okay. Sorry, I do. Yes, I do. (laughs) You should just stop framing things as a question for me. It's only a chance for me to be a dick. Um, (laughs) Francine, please tell me about alchemy. Okay. I've been ever such a good girl. Have you? Yeah, no, I'm barely a girl. You've been ever such a good being. I'm not going to commit to mammal today. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fair. I (laughs) I just... 
enjoy reading about alchemy and so it was a nice chance once that building kept blowing up in Ankh Morpork to do so. Alchemy is a bit of a weird one because it's not really like one thing, is it? It's not, and it's got it's got its roots like way back in ancient Egypt and ancient Asia and all of this stuff. But now it's kind of seen very much as philosopher's stone turning lead into gold, and that's pretty much it. But like until reasonably recently, like like pre seventeen hundreds, it was it was chemistry. It was like synonymous with chemistry. It was the science of the time, and it would kind of dip in and out of more occult things and like astrology and tie in with various religions, you know, whatever was in at the time. Well, that's where the whole like John Dee stuff, he was an alchemist. Tell me about John Dee. John Dee was like an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Ah. Uh, And he was very much a scientist and an alchemist, but he also was very on the occult stuff. And like, there are some, like there's obviously evidence is very weird, but there are some historical theories about the fact he was, effectively looking for the philosopher's stone to prolong prolong queen elizabeth the first reign because she didn't have heirs oh cool oh i like that yeah yeah so sorry interrupted. no sorry no 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 that's cool um <laughs> and yeah actually like monarchs and alchemists have quite a history of like unsurprisingly because monarchs want power and alchemists promise that um tying in with these alchemists being like a guild as well. I thought it was quite interesting. In um, 1403, Henry IV banned the practice of multiplying metals, which basically banned a lot of alchemy. Um, But you could buy a license to attempt to make gold alchemically. And so uh, for a couple of monarchs, like uh, Henry VI and VI and one of the Edwards, I think, you could buy like alchemist licenses. So it was basically like a, almost like a guild kind of thing, which is quite cool. Um, But yeah, and then from from about 1720 though, um, chemists decided to distinguish themselves from alchemists. And this was when chemistry became the kind of scientifically rigorous field and alchemy kind of stuck with being a little more arcane and occult, although, you know, there's some question about whether that was entirely fair and whether people who called themselves chemists just kind of nicked a bunch of alchemists' work, basically. Um, you know, the whole fucky history and everybody gets a bum deal when you look into the history of science. Um, and then, obviously, obviously, the Victorians revived it for a little while because That's Victorians are Victor. <laughs> um we haven't bitched about Victorians for ages. Anyway, so that more or less all I have to say that's even vaguely relevant on the topic, but alchemy and history of is so fucking extensive with so many fun rabbit holes to go down that I thoroughly recommend anyone take far too long on the Wikipedia and associated sources. Excellent. Anything, any Wikipedia page that starts in in ancient Egypt and doesn't end until after the Victorians is a good one. Yeah, that's 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 a history. Yeah, we had a nice time going through the list of cryptids on Victor- Wikipedia the other day. That was a oh cryptids, oh cryptids, you so mysterious. All I want is to become a cryptid. Well, I'm not sure you exist. Like right now, you exist to me as a low res silhouette photo, much like Nessie. So, yeah. <laughs> Have I ever really seen you? Um, yes. What is 
reality is memories like, like notoriously less than, unreliable less than two weeks ago sorry i exist you <laughs> exist movie posters exist he she they existed. <laughs> um so yeah i like old movie posters i love old movie posters i like them a lot um you've got i looked yeah we've got a bunch hanging up around the place tom chantrell is the artist of our house which sounds very grand but it just means that jack spent too much money on post as well yeah um <laughs> but movie posters i decided to look right back because we are looking at the dawn of hollywood here yeah um movie posters are boring as fuck to start with uh so quite parallel to how silverfish was doing it yeah, I'll send you a couple. I saved some to send you on signals. So if you want to turn your phone off airplane for a minute. We um I was talking about the little cinema I work in. One of the coolest things about it is a bit that uh customers don't get to see, which is the loft, which sort of has our changing room and stuff in. Mm-hmm. Which is all like so the stairs going up to it and then the whole room itself and then the plywood walls put up that make our little changing section are all papered with movie posters including the ceiling oh cool it's amazing so it's like really weird as you go up the stairs there's a few really old movie posters which Uh i will uh take a couple of pictures of uh for our listeners and put them on twitter or something um yeah do you but then as you kind of get up the stairs, we've used more recent ones. So there's like, there's loads of 90s ones. There's a Spice World one up there. Oh, wow. And they kind of get more modern as like more sort of walls are being put up. Oh, see, these are cool. I like these. Okay, so the first one is like from the 1910s. So could you describe that for us? Uh, so it says Keystone Comedy, Hearts and Planets. And there is a woman holding a man's hand while another man opens a door holding an umbrella with a fantastic beard and a top hat. And it says at the bottom, interrupted. Yeah, everybody is fully dressed. Yes, very well dressed. Real attempt to make you want to see this film. Yes, there's not much in the way of colour, and I've got no idea what the plot is. Yeah, I mean, we know it's a comedy just because that's in the name of the company. Uh, And the man holding an umbrella sure looks comically unhappy. (laughs) Well, everyone knows an umbrella is a surefire route to comedy. Um, and then if you go across to the next one I sent you, that was from the 50s, so 40 years later. This is fantastic. Glorious is, Technicolor all round. Yeah. This is Manhunters of the Caribbean. Could you describe this poster? There uh, is a, Avoiding if you like some of the more problematic parts. <laughs> I was going to say, like, so we have the main picture is a white man in sort of safari type clothes uh, and a scantily clad white woman. Note well, his moustache. Yes, yes, the white man is very mustachioed. The woman has very good hair, considering they're apparently in a Caribbean jungle. Mm. Um, short shorts, obviously. And uh, she's cowering as he points a gun at a snake and also a jaguar. And then in a little circle, there's a racist bit with a shark. <laughs> yes. I applaud you, not the racism. <laughs> the deep sea diver... Appearing to fight with some indigenous chap, I assume, who is wearing a crude deep sea diving outfit somehow. And there's a shark. Of course there's a shark. <laughs> and that's just the inset there. Yeah, that's just a little insert. Um, here we also have some explanatory text, which is death-defying adventures in an unexplored jungle, which is a bit more dibbler. 
That is very Dibbler. Well, this is, as you brought this up, I was going to point out uh, Dibbler's amazing poster design. Yeah, um, hold on. I'm still working on this bit. So I'm sending you one more because I feel like a lot of this bit and like Dibbler's stuff and what Pratchett's alluding to is B-movie. And so mainstream movies are one thing, but B-movie is where the real genius in posters come out. So this This is is a movie that wasn't even made, but it has like, it's one of the best ones for having all the tropes. When the earth cracked open, mm-hmm. we have in the background a sort of bit of a post-apocalyptic landscape. Mm-hmm. The earth has clearly cla- cracked open. Mm-hmm. And then in the foreground, we just have a woman wearing a bubbly space helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, her tits are out. Her tits but are she out, has yeah. some kind of black latex bodysuit not covering her breast but it is covering some other parts and apparently a thigh holster and she's got gloves on so you know adequately prepared for whatever she needs to get up to also i'm assuming she's meant to be standing in water and not just doesn't have legs yeah i think so yeah <laughs> but this is another tom chantrell one and if i can ever find it to buy as a high-res poster i will do um but i haven't been able to find it yet it is just a fantastic piece of nonsense it is marvellous. Yeah, no, on the movie poster thing, uh-huh. uh, I love what the description of the uh, poster design Dibbler has done for the Kurt and the Barbarian movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Read which, it. it showed a picture of what might just possibly be Ginger pouting in a blouse too small for her, and Victor in the act of throwing her over one shoulder while fighting an assortment of monsters with the other hand. In the background, volcanoes were erupting, dragons were zooming through the sky, and cities were burning down. The motion picture they could not ban, read Besom hesitantly. A scorching adventure in the white-hot dawn of a new continent. A man and a woman thrown together in a whirlpool of a world gone mad. Starring Dolores DeSin as the woman. And Victor Maraschino as Cohen the Barbarian. Thrills, adventure, elephants, coming soon to a pit near you. Fucking elephants. (laughs) I can't do the proper movie announcer voice. And uh, AJ, who by this point our listeners will be aware of as uh, the accidental Satanist who uh, performed the radio play for the podcast, does an amazing movie announcer voice. He had to do some voiceover for a monologue I performed that opened with me acting in a trailer for a film. And uh, it was fantastic. But... This ridiculous idea of Dibbler just managing to be such a good hype man. Yeah, he doesn't really care about what the reality is of the film. He just knows what people are going to come and see and they'll like it when they get there. Yeah, exactly. And he's sort of building up these quick backstories for Ginger and Victor as well. Ginger's now Dolores to sin and she's the daughter of a Clatchian pirate and his wild headstrong captive and Victor's the son of a rogue wizard and a reckless flamenco dancer. <laughs> I've missed a word out there because we're not using that word on the podcast. I really like this whole concept of wild ideas and the way reality works on the disc, just because it's something that comes up like as a theme that runs through a lot of the books. So mm-hmm. at this point, we're still talking about things from the dungeon dimension who push through whenever reality gets a bit weaker. Yeah. Uh, but this idea of Hollywood being as something as intangible as an idea was exactly what it was. It was a wild idea. And it just sort of popped into the disc. And this is the thing that happens a couple of times where a wild idea turns up Mm. and runs rampant and twists the nature of reality. And because reality is sort of weirdly stretched on a rubber sheet, as we've tried to understand physics before, 
it's great fun and I really like how he does this as we go through the books yeah. the idea of Hollywood leaked innocently and joyfully into the disc world and reality leaked out yeah and it's the sort of thing where and it's it ties in with this idea of what Hollywood is it's this thing where things become more real than real mm. and reality sort of goes away and creates this completely fictional world that is somehow more real to people than actual reality yeah because it's like it's like a caricature isn't it yeah yeah uh, and but that this, replaces the the memory the in your mind yeah and that this takes it to its logical conclusion which is what if that actually ripped a hole in the fabric yeah. of the space-time continuum <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, so logical that. conclusion, is it? Yes, definitely. Yeah, Holds okay, in the cool. space-time conclusion. <laughs> so yes, it's a theme that runs through the books a lot and we get to see it played within lots of different ways and this just happens to be one of my favourites. Hmm. And then the last thing I had was uh, a nice little question when Victor oh, yeah. is asking how everything works with the handlemen and the imps and how they actually film things. And uh, the gaffer thinks for a second and then just says, string, all works by string. You'd be amazed how things have fall to bits around here if it wasn't for me and my ball of string. <laughs> and that's such a, that is a thing. Like the world is held together with fucking duct tape and willpower. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what item for you is kind of loosely holding your life together? Oh, Ooh, that presumes a lot. Uh, but <laughs> I said loosely. Do you have an answer while I think of this? Oh, God, no, I didn't actually think about it for myself at all. Okay, cool. cool. Well, actually, right now I'm in the blanket fort, so I'm going to say laundry errors. <laughs> I like that. Uh, what do I fix shit with? I'm always fixing shit. What do I use? Uh, um, 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 I think it's held together loosely with packing tape. I use packing tape on a lot of things, wires fraying. Anything I want to stick something else, basically. I think pasta and cheese are also largely holding my life together right now. Yeah, in a more metaphorical way, melted cheese is definitely a, a load-bearing part of life. <laughs> load-bearing cheese. <laughs> I'm hungry now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sorry, Lassie, have you got an obscure reference for me, Finial, for me? I have, I have. Um, there's so many fucking like obscure and non-obscure references through this. It was really hard to pick one. So eventually I just picked one that wasn't in the annotated Pratchett files. Um, and I highly recommend listeners more than usual to go to the annotated Pratchett files for this one, just because there's loads of interesting stuff. Um, but this one I caught when the alchemists are talking about making movies on page 25. Um, Lully says... Uh, not just illusion, but real illusion, which I think is an etymology reference uh, because the word illusion comes from uh, to play, to mock, jest, uh, jeer, use irony, and then to, to play act, basically, in some cases. Um, and then... Yeah, so illusion comes from that. I like it. And it's the same root word that makes up ludicrous. So ah. That's nice. Ludicrous is a great bit. word. I don't use the word ludicrous often enough. In ludicrous, yes. Ludicrous. Yeah. 
Marvellous. I think well, I, think- I think that's a reference, or I may have just made a complete jump into nothing, but either way, it was an excuse to do a bit of etymology. Yeah, we learned a bit about etymology, and really that's what I look for from a Discworld podcast. Yes. Right, I think that's everything that could ever be said ever about part one of Moving Pictures. Yes. We don't will be back. <laughs> Apart from all the things For that For goodness we... sake, it's very important that you don't at me this week. Well, look, I'm literally about to ask our <laughs> listeners to at us. So at okay, me. Okay, well, do, do actually at us. But yeah, do actually nice at things, us. We like I'm, it. I'm, I'm in such a bad mood. I'm sorry. It's fine. Uh, so next week, we are talking about part two, which goes from page 112. Gaspode mm-hmm. led the way out of the alley and through the dark hinterland of scrubby brushes and sandgrass beyond the town mm-hmm. and ends on page 219 when the fire had died down they raked some of the ashes together for a barbecue at the end of shooting party under the stars Hmm. Uh, that's where we're going to be next week in the meantime dear listener you can follow us on instagram at the true shall make you fret you can follow us on twitter at make you fret pod uh, on Facebook at the Tree Shall Make You Fret. Uh, you can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and albatrosses, the Truth Shall Make You Fret pod at gmail.com. As always, do not try and explain the rules of cricket or time travel to us. Please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get a po- your podcast because it helps other people find us. Like there's a podcast, not physically in person, because there's one of those. I feel like I feel like more important than that is just tell people about us if you think someone might enjoy the podcast. Tell them. Well, yes. Tell them like threateningly. Yeah. Please. Not just like a gentle recommendation. Say it meant. Say it with like menaces. If you can hold a blunt object in one hand. Yes, please do. Not a sharp object. A blunt object. Yeah, I mean we're not beastly. Do spread the good word of the true shell minky fret. Uh, you can also, if you want Not to, a cult. <laughs> definitely not a cult. Anything you, that needs to specify that is definitely good. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to keep up with my Inktober poetry. Oh, yeah. Maybe explain what that is again. Because Yeah. Uh, this is a thing I do every October. This is my fourth year doing it. Uh, I write and release a poem into the world every day this month. Uh, mostly videos, hopefully, uh, but with text and things as well. So you can Did follow you get a my tripod. Yeah. Uh, no, but I didn't use one much last year. Okay, I'll I'll figure it out. Um, so yeah, so follow me on Twitter at jo- Joanna Hagen or on Instagram at Joanna Macuccio or follow my Facebook page Joanna Hagen Spoken Word, and you can check out the poetry that I'm putting out. I'll link all of those in the show notes, by the way, listeners, because Joanna talks very quickly when she's trying to self-promote. Yes, I do, because I'm very (laughs) embarrassed by doing it. But I also want people to see it, because that makes it worth doing. And... Read us a poem, Joanna. We want to sample these wares before we go to all of the effort of clicking on a hyperlink so helpfully (laughs) provided by your brilliant co-host. I will do a quick one because we've been recording for quite a while. This is one from the very first year I did Inktober because quite often I run out of ideas and end up having to write a couple of poems about writer's block. (laughs) And it's called The Dog Ate My Homework. It's not there today, I'm sorry. Could I get back to you tomorrow? There was this idea I thought I'd borrow, but I 
left it just forget it and I know I promised inspiration and desire I said I would write in lines of fire and on my funeral pyre there would be words words nothing but words but I'm afraid they've left the building and I think I've got the feeling that your faith has been misplaced the lily might need gilding there's no sparks left in this place there is no magic left to give you it's just me so please forgive me but they haven't been well lately and the words that I promised the dog ate them <laughs> very good that's also like the closest i've come to forming poetry in like a year that was great i enjoyed that very much the first yeah. time and this time awesome so yes check it out if you're into that sort of thing do it do it i might even try and do a couple i certainly won't do it every day let's stop pretending i'm ever going to do that but i might try and join <laughs> in. i might try and join in once or twice if we do like a joint prompt or something yes that'll be fun and in the meantime dear listener Don't let us detain you. Hello, darling. What are you woofing at? Oh, oh, did you have a nightmare? Oh, did you woof yourself awake? Are you okay? Listeners, I would like to clarify that Francine is talking to the puppy and not me. Oh, (laughs) I won't be that nice to you if you fall asleep during the podcast. Next door had their baby. Oh, that's nice. Well, I mean, not for you living next door to them. Well, that's not so bad. It sounds like a lamb. I'm not sure if Jack and I are just like irredeemably rural, but it sounded just like a lamb in distress to both of us.